you remember the first time you voted in an election? Oh, uh, well, I remember that I did as soon as I was able, but I don't remember specifically. It was, it was many moons ago, Kyle. I think in Toronto generally means I voted some kind of liberal party at what, whatever level of election, because that's just what you do in Toronto. What about you? I don't really remember the first election I was in. I know that when I actually got to be voting age, because I was in Lethbridge, it was a whole ordeal to actually get back to my small little town to cast my vote and stuff like that. It just didn't seem to be super easy to do you it. You weren't so. allowed to vote in Lethbridge? That's very Albertan, no. isn't it? Yeah. No, you're not. I would have taken it's, one it's look at primary, you. Yeah. It's your primary residence, which that was not technically my primary right. residence because I was going to school there. So it was this whole big thing. So you have to drive back to the Rocky Mountain. Yeah, so I just didn't want to do that. But once I got on my own here in Calgary, that was the time of the liberal minority government. Anyways, there was like three elections that happened within like 18 months. Yeah. <laughs> and so I voted in all those Feels ones. Like and last got year. really good yeah. at knowing where I had to go and vote, that whole thing. Uh, but it brought to mind too, like doing that process, you feel like so grown up and you feel like you're actually doing something uh, rather than the few times we quote unquote voted in high school and stuff like that it's like none of this none of this really matters well let me ask you this so maybe that is actually more true to real life than you, than you might let me think. ask you this how long did it take for you to get jaded in that process because uh i'm pretty sure mm -hmm. i stopped voting for a few cycles in toronto into my 30s that's for sure i guess to answer your question i still have this feeble glimpse that the de democratic process is something that should be supported even though like intellectually it doesn't really matter. It really just doesn't matter. It's a weird thing, stats. Stats and mass data. Like you, on my ideal side, I think that the process and thought behind democratic uh, elections is a powerful one. But uh, mm -hmm. as I'm researching now into this new potential podcast I idea I have, there's an interesting correlation between modern media and art and uh, data and politics. I have a suspicion, and we'll see if this comes true, that uh, I'm jaded for a reason. We can, in a broad, sweeping sense, but you can't as an individual. Okay, so let's do a vote right now. Who wants Dave to stop being a Debbie Downer here? Okay. <laughs> I just want this conversation to be over. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. The machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. This is the podcast, of course, where this machine is forcing me and Dave to go through currently the year 1999 and talk about movies. And it gives us an excuse to talk about almost anything except for movies. But this week, we get to talk about election. That was a great pause. Should leave that pause in. Super awkward. <laughs> no, I needed, I needed it to cut <laughs> properly. Now to the presidential race with three candidates running. The first is Tracy Flick. One thing is important to know about me is that I'm an only child. My mom 
Palmer, really devoted. She likes to write letters to successful women like Elizabeth Dole and Connie Chung, and ask them what advice do they have for me, Tracy, and her daughter. The next candidate for student body president, Paul Mitzler. I just don't think somebody would do something like that on purpose. I think she did it. If you want to question me like this, I won't continue without my attorney present. Dave, what's your relationship with election? Uh, the movie or the process? Yeah. The movie, no, I no. don't... The movie, like, have you seen it before, no. knew about it? Like, what was your no, issue I, with it at all? It's like one of those things I think I was watching and so into movies as part of my identity. I know that this movie exists. I could have described to you what the poster looked like. I knew who was mm. in it. I've never watched this movie before. It's definitely entered, I think, the popular culture a lot. I see memes with this movie all the time. Uh, mostly of the Reese Witherspoon character. I think it's not in my algorithm. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. This is also somewhat big in, I would call, gay Twitter, where it gets it gets referenced quite a bit. I also, this is this is like a recurring theme on this show. I know this poster, like the back of my hand, like I saw it all the time. Definitely when it was in theaters, but definitely like browsing the uh, aisles and like blockbuster, that sort of thing. Like for some reason, that image of Weiss with a spoon with her mouth open and then Matthew Broderick's face inside of her mouth is like, what is this movie? Like I didn't even know what it was. Yeah, I, uh, I don't, I, I still don't. Have we watched it yet? No, we haven't watched it yet, Dave. Come on. <clears throat> How do you think this thing works? Uh, why don't we do that though? Let's go thank some sponsors. We'll go and watch the movie Election, and then we'll return. We'll have a big old discussion about it. Hi there, everyone. This is just Kyle breaking into the middle of the episode once again to talk to you about our sponsors this week. Apparently, there's a court order where Dave never has to do these. You've heard me say this before, but Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Well, this week, our episode is brought to you by Back to School Again, a podcast about midlife learners. So listen up, Dave, wherever you are. The next season dives into the power of online learning. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Katrina Ingram. I'm working on a special three-part mini-series of the Back to School Again podcast in partnership with Athabasca University, which highlights the power of online learning. We'll talk about how the internet has transformed education, the role of microlearning and micro-credentialing, and an exciting new offering called PowerEd. I've just completed the PowerEd course, Machine Learning for Competitive Advantage, and I'll share some of the cool things I've learned about how artificial intelligence is shaping our world and how to apply machine learning to solve business problems. The series launches in April, but you can subscribe now at backtoschoolagain.ca. Hope you'll join us. You can find Back to School Again on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at backtoschoolagain.ca. That's backtoschoolagain.ca. This week, we're also sponsored by PodPower. With PodPower, ATB is making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, 
we're giving a pod power shout out to the shared mic the shared mic is edmonton's first unscripted intergenerational podcast the show connects two people of different ages and stages to interview each other about shared life experiences it's hosted by age friendly edmonton a partnership between the city of edmonton and the edmonton seniors coordinating council find the shared mic wherever you find your podcasts or at the sharedmic.blueberry.net Blueberry, of course, is spelled in the very hipster way of B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Think of it as a cold blueberry. It's blue. Burry. Uh, yes. <laughs> Let's go with that. Again, that's the sharedmic.blueberry.net. All right. Well, Dave, uh, just by observing how you acted while we were watching this, uh, I mean, separately, but we were FaceTiming with one another. We're still keeping our distance from one another. I feel like this might be the, the, the finally the podcast where we actually argue about a movie instead of agreeing about it pretty much the entire way through. You, so let's see. Let's see if I'm Would right. you say that we should debate about it? Although there was no debate in the movie. I... Let's... One second. Sorry. You say what you We're already going. Yeah. No, I I feel very tepid. I feel very lukewarm right now, Kyle. And judging by your virtual visage, you like this crap. So, this will be fun. Are you much of an Alexander Payne fan at all? Alexander Payne? What's Alexander Payne? Sideways, The Descendants, oh. uh, Nebraska. Oh, is this the same director? He, he directed this oh, movie. Okay. Yeah, so I'm just asking if you're... Because uh, weirdly enough, I'm actually lukewarm on most of his other movies. Yeah, I was just thinking. <laughs> so that's why sideways, I asked. I don't know. I'm doing a lot of virtual audio shrugging. Shrugging. Yeah. All right. Well, they're okay. Let's get into this. Let's talk about this. Um, I'm going to push this button here. Turn out this receipt. Um, so Election was released April 23rd, 1999. Uh, the other major releases that week, the first one was Existence. We should have watched starring that. Starring Jennifer Jason Leigh. Yeah, that's a gross Jude movie. Law. We should have done that one. Uh, written and directed by David Cronenberg. But yes, um, I'm a big fan of that movie, even as gross and weird as it is. It's just like alien phallus. We should have done that. It's very sloppy. Yeah. And from what I remember, <laughs> well, I haven't we watched that movie since we I first watched oh, it. Oh, yeah. It's been years. Yeah. Uh, there was also Pushing Tin that oh, came out this week, that starring John Cusack, Air- Billy Bob Thornton, written by Glenn Charles, and directed by Mike Newell. The airport movie. Uh, sure. I actually know the name. I've never seen the movie, so I actually don't know what it's about. I feel like that somewhere is an air traffic controller, and that would have been better than this crap we just watched. I mean, sorry, that would have been better than what we just watched. All right, well, yeah. you can take it up with the machine. You're cute when you get angry. Its budget was $25 million. It what? opened... Yeah, it was 25 million bucks to make this movie. It opened to $119,000. Yep. Domestically, it would go on to make $14.9 million. It did not get an international release. So it ended with 14.9 or $23 million are uh, after inflation. So this was a box office bomb, straight up box office bomb. But has become a fairly <laughs> well-regarded movie. Uh, in the intervening 21 years. Its plot description from IMDb is, a high school teacher's personal life becomes complicated as he works with students during the school elections, particularly with an obsessive overachiever determined to become student body president. Which is a pretty accurate description of what this movie is, is but I don't think it really grabs the tone very well right. of what this movie Okay, that's <laughs> does. fair. Yeah, I was the whole time I was like, what? It stars Reese Witherspoon as Tracy Flick, Matthew Broderick as Jim McAllister, Chris Klein as Paul Metzler, and Jessica Campbell as Tammy Metzler. Now, something interesting is going on. Uh, The machine was very angry 
after the last couple of weeks. And it finally forced me. It slapped me a couple times. I'm actually very scared being in my home alone right now. You put hands uh, on it, Kyle. Yeah. It's disgusting. Uh, it, it actually is somehow like self replicating itself almost like terminator style Ugh. so you actually dave have a printer that i sent to you via mail why well, i still can do that because it you know the the machine wants you uh, to also be involved in some of this trivia and information we're giving here at the beginning of the episodes so uh let me talk to you first and then you'll finish up with a couple other uh, people let me tell you about jessica campbell she was born october 30th 1982 and at 10 years old, she appeared in the TV movie, uh, The Best Interest of the Children. But Election was her first feature film. She would go on to be in a couple of episodes of Freaks and Geeks, and then last appeared in the film Junk in 2002. She has left acting, and last reported she was studying anthropology when she was in college. So maybe she's doing that. Well, I don't actually know. Freaks and Geeks was good. It's yeah. a great, that's yeah. a great, great, great show. Yeah. I was so sad when it went off the air but i love that's, that show that's the way that's the way narrators are supposed to be kyle no i need closure <laughs> damn it uh chris klein born march 14th 1979 and 1999 was a great year for chris klein because this was the first movie he ever appeared in he'd follow it up later this same year to be in american pie oh this so. is the same year as american <laughs> pie same year yeah yeah it's it's about the same amount of acting ability Sure. Hey, I'm not, I'm not here to judge, except I will be afterwards. Really, the only reason he's in this film is because Alexandra Payne, who grew up in Nebraska, was scouting talent in Omaha because he wanted to film there, which is where Klein was going to school, and so he was cast after he went and auditioned for it. Uh, from there, he's been a working actor ever since. He's been in most of the American Pie sequels, uh, the awful Rollerball remake, and then We Were Soldiers, Just Friends, and of course... Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li. In the mid-2010s is when Chris started being in a bunch of TV shows, probably the most notable being The Flash, where he's guested on 16 episodes. The next film you could see him in is Intensive Care. Intensive Care is a powerful and uplifting drama focusing on the... <laughs> David's shaking his head. A powerful and uplifting drama focusing on the unusual relationship that develops between a fragile southern woman whose husband is on life support, and the young, abused boy she kidnaps and takes on the road as their families and the cops search for them. Oh, God. So, I'm sure you'll be first in line, Dave. I'm sure you'll be first in line. It's going to be a great world release, that one. Well, you push your button on your printer, you'll get the rest of what we're supposed to say here at the beginning. This is fun. Inclusion, Kyle. Yes. I've been meaning to talk to you about this. Yeah. So, my... Uh, if we can I call my printer the Epson all get try to get some money from Epson no. Yeah, sure. It's the, the Epson all in one. Yeah, I, I, I have this Epson all in one printer, Kyle, where uh you don't buy cartridges anymore and you save money on ink. How how does it print? What is how does it use ink? Uh, well no, it's ink, but you buy them in uh in latex no, they're not probably not latex, but in these plastic bags and you squeeze the you squeeze the ink into the actual I don't know, containers. Mm -hmm. um, and then after you're done doing that, do you actually directly go to a dolphin and stuff it into its blowhole, well, the, uh, the empty package? I mean, it's an important part of the process. I mean, that's sure. that's biodiversity. That's the whole thing, interacting with the environment, Kyle. Yeah. Everybody knows right. that. <laughs> Come on, Plus, idiot, read a book. Uh, if you have been doing any Wikipediaing, uh, Wikipedia uh, dolphins are disgusting. 
No, they are. I mean, same with seals. Seals are gross. They're pretty awful. And there's a mammal with a star-shaped dick. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff out there. (laughs) So weird stuff. Okay, so my printer told me about Matthew Broderick. Shall I read what it says here? Yeah, just read read through it. All right. It says, born March 21st, 1962. He started acting in the early 80s. His first film was Max Duggan. Is it Duggan? Dugan? I think it's Dugan, Dugan. actually, but I don't know. I had this intuition. I read that wrong. Much like all of my reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, his first film was Max Dugan Returns. And his second film was War Games. That was fun. Oh, probably doesn't yeah, hold up. That's a fun movie. Does it hold up? Uh, I actually watched it a couple of years ago. I think I rated it like a, a three and a half out of five. Oh, so it's fun. It's, I don't think it's great. No. But yeah. then I don't have any nostalgia for it because I didn't see it when it was released. He would then go on to be in Lady Hawk. Do you remember Lady Hawk? That's I actually with uh, Catwoman. Remember. Michelle Pfeiffer? Yes, I believe it's Michelle Pfeiffer. And there's another famous person that I'm uh, blanking Sean on. Sean Connery? No, it's an, but maybe Rutger Hauer or something. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. There's <laughs> Before being cast in his probably most famous role as Ferris Bueller in Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 1986. After this, he had an extensive career both in film and on stage. His films in this period would include Biloxi Blues, Torch Song Trilogy, Glory, and being the voice of Simba in The Lion King. Glory's a fantastic movie. <laughs> he also appeared in the stage versions of Biloxi Blues and Torch Song Trilogy. This would culminate with The Producers, which is a huge hit and in many ways it's credited as rejuvenating Broadway. He then would take that role alongside his co-star Nathan Lane to make a pretty forgettable movie version of it. Oh, damn. The robot's not cutting Well, I mean, that, that's the machine talking. <clears throat> that's, yeah, that's pretty, pretty cruel. brutal. It's not- I, I will say, breaking in here, yeah. uh, if people don't know his work on stage, it's it's kind of a weird, like he was actually kind of known as a great dramatic actor and then segued into being kind of a song and dance man <laughs> later on to his career. So there's a weird like shift that happened with his stage work. Actually, I feel like listening to you say that, I'm getting Ferris Bueller and Glory. Like yeah. he's a lampoon or he's uh, sacrificing himself for his troops right. with a weird mustache. The next film you might be able to see is Lazy Susan. Is it about uh, something in a kitchen? No, it's described as a slice of life comedy about a woman on the edge with nowhere to go, but over? Is that really yes. right? Uh, that's, nowhere that's to exactly, go, this is com- but over. <laughs> this is, yeah. Lazy a slice Susan. of life comedy about a woman on the edge with nowhere to go, but over. That's a weird sentence. That yeah. is actually now reading that back. That's a very weird sentence. <laughs> that's okay, robot. Uh, you understand no grammar? That's right from IMDb, though. This is a copy and paste, I would assume, from IMDb. IMDb. Lazy Susan is a story about a spectacularly unmotivated woman for whom doing nothing is exhausting. I think we can all uh, appreciate Ooh. that feeling right now. Yeah. Um, I noticed that the machine did not include in here the fact that Matthew Broderick killed a person. Oh, I guess we don't we don't talk about that anymore. No, we don't. Well, controversy is so nineteen ninety nine, right? It's the two. Sure, the twenty twenty. It's been twenty one years, okay, man. We're good. Everybody's killed somebody in Hollywood. Actually, that's not probably an exaggeration true. at this it's point. It's probably yeah. true. Yeah, I'm sorry I said that. Either wrong. directly or indirectly, <laughs> somehow it has happened. Yeah, even without the Weinstein uh, six degrees of separation, everybody mm-hmm. there is a monster. Meryl Streep is actually responsible for at least five deaths. So Meryl Streep's one of those people where you know posthumously shit's going to come out because. Uh, Do you think so? Yeah, there's something about a woman that could be nominated for an Academy Award every year that's suspicious, Sus- suspect, but. Yeah, well, I guess we'll find out. I'm sure you're in love with her. Okay. Uh, I do. I love Meryl Streep. I just watched uh, Postcards from the Edge the other day. I loved it. 
What about the movie from Netflix? It looks garbage. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that one is. Yeah. I'm sure that's garbage. Yeah. yeah, she'll get nominated for that one for sure. Uh, do I do? Am I continuing? Is it still my yes. turn? Okay, continue. Reese Witherspoon. Oh, what a cop out! It says we've already discussed Reese and our cruel intentions episode. So I guess go go and listen to that. Listen, machine. Yeah, that's some. <laughs> hey, we need SEO. So the, the, go listen to other episodes of this podcast so it gets recommended again scroll, and again people. to other scroll. people. Scroll, scroll, rate, mm -hmm. comment, subscribe. Yeah, just keep scrolling. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. We need we need you. If you're listening to this, we need you. This movie was directed by Alexander Payne. It was written by Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, based on the book by Alex no, sorry, by Tom Parada. Yes. Jim Taylor was born in 1962, no word on month or day, vampire. Before election, he wrote the movie Citizen Ruth, starring Laura Dern. But let me just read his list of writing projects. His credits on Jurassic Park 3, yikes, should have omitted that, about yeah. Schmidt, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, as yeah. well as downsizing. Oh my lord. His Isn't last... that a wild <laughs> this variety of movies that he's written? I just can't. Yeah. Like the same person who wrote this movie also wrote Jurassic Park 3 and then I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. You know like, what that's you so weird to me. You know what you hashtag that? Creativity, Kyle. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. His last screenplay was Juliet Naked in 2018. That's some old school hardcore uh, softcore porn stuff. Juliet I'm, Naked. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Awful. <clears throat> Alexander Payne was born February 10th 1961. His first full-length film as director was The Passion of Martin from 1991, but Citizen Ruth was his only other film before election. After election, he has had great acclaim as a director for things like Sideways, About Schmidt, and Nebraska. His next project... Is Nebraska the one with uh, that old man in black and white? And he, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. It's uh, Laura Dern's father, actually, yeah, Bruce Stern. Bruce Stern. I was, like, was going to say Bob. I'm like, he's not a Bob. He's not a Bob. His next project, which will most likely be coming out next year, is The Menu. Described, is it kind of like Lazy Susan? Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a direct sequel to Lazy Susan. <laughs> Might be a prequel, because usually <laughs> I like to get The Menu before I uh, rotate yeah, yeah, the exactly. Lazy Susan. Described as a young couple travel to a remote island to eat at an exclusive restaurant where the chef has prepared a lavish menu with some shocking surprises. I mean, it has to be a cannibal movie, right? It With has that to description, be. like it has to be. Or dolphins. Well, maybe the yeah, the dolphins it could be dolphins. <laughs> With with your plastic bag still in its blowhole as it, it brings it, it to the table. I do, I do sign them, so right. I might, like, I might get credit for that film. <laughs> right. Oh, this is so good, David Young. What? <laughs> well, that's what you're tasting. It's authenticity. Um, all right, so that's some background, I guess, from the the creative forces that are in this movie. So let's pull off the band-aid here then, Dave. What did you think about this movie? Um, yeah, I watched it. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't know. Like, a ringing okay. endorsement or <clears throat> ringing endorsement. I guess, I don't, I don't know how to frame this conversation. Let's start with, you know, when it opened and it had this sort of, uh, I mean, these are strong words, but like sort of subversive, ironic, like really de almost deadpan buildup, uh, just mm -hmm. to show how like small town, I suppose, uh, we were starting. And then they cut to the narration. I was thinking, oh, this might be some insightful, small scale thing about, you know, politics in America. And then it kind of went off the rails for me there. I mean, I, I think the actors, with the exception of a notable uh, lead, um, although for his role, Chris Klein, you know, kind of plays Chris Klein. When he needs to. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't a matter of the acting. Uh, I thought everybody did really well. I, I actually enjoyed moments. Uh, 
uh, you know, of Reese and of, uh, of Reese and I are, are buds. So like of Reese, of yeah, our, our right. dubs and, um, and Matthew Broderick, I actually really like a lot because he does that spread pun intended for this movie, mm -hmm. uh, between being able to look destitute and dramatic and play the fool and, you know, do all these things. And it's still believable, although it's, it gets cartoonish, of course. Um, sure. And then by the end, uh, I just didn't understand why I had to watch it. I, I didn't I didn't get the point. You know, there are little moments where I truly loved. Like I loved the fact, and I don't think you can get away with this anymore unless it's a comedic actress um, of the freeze frames of him uh, oh, sure. like, hating Reese Witherspoon, but they do the real freeze frame of her looking like an idiot. It's great. You know, how many dramatic actresses would allow that to happen anymore in modern mm -hmm. society's image uh, heavy thing? So you get cool insights. I just, I didn't connect to the story at all. I, I think trying to pick at and play with the sort of, let's call it morality and maybe desperation. I don't know if it's supposed to be a commentary in small town America. I don't identify with it in that sense. So it's just felt like desperate people in a weird, small, tight environment, making really strange decisions. Everybody's got a uh, character flaw with the exception of um, the naive, beautiful fool. And then the weird epilogue, I got, I, I don't know. It just dragged on a bit and then it ended and I was like, why? I, thanks. You know what? I, th th there might be something that you're hitting on that is why we're having such a different reaction to this movie you're saying how because of the small townness you don't really understand maybe uh people's uh machinations for power almost and that's exactly what i identified with so much from coming from a small town like the smallest little bit of power that someone gets goes to their head to such a degree that it's fascinating to watch right in a small town it's like well i own the car dealership so i'm like this big guy mm -hmm. we're in like a toronto like who the fuck cares like you own a car dealership no one is gonna pay you any heed really at that point like there's this huge difference in priorities and, and and power levels going from small town to big city and i thought that that's what election did so beautifully was it's like at the end of the day, and I, one of the characters fly out says this, which I think is actually kind of the thesis of the film, Tracy Flake, you know, portrayed by Reese Witherspoon, who is going after being the head of the, uh, the world, uh, the, well, the world, but you know, um, uh, student body president. Right. But one of the characters even states this theme, which is basically none of this matters. Like none of this matters. We're going to say something. We're going to get elected. We can't do anything anyways, because really the people who hold the power at the school is the teachers and the principal. So I remember being in, in student assemblies and people coming on. We want to be president and you had to go and vote. And I thought the same thing back then. It's like, well, you can't do anything. It's like, I'm going to, you know, change the school. You're not, but okay, I guess we can play this game that you're going to. It just looks good on your resume so that you can go to uh, Washington and get a job and say that, hey, I was the student body president to pad your career to like keep the whole thing going because what you're doing there doesn't really matter either because there's other people pulling the strings anyways uh so it's just a smaller scale look at that whole oh, relationship who's cynical now kyle <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess so all your opening optimism about elections and having this empowerment but when you describe the experience of uh, the small town uh, culture uh, yeah I guess the other thing, and I 100% I, I understand that this is my own baggage that I'm bringing to this, 
but I don't know how else you can talk about films without bringing your own background into it and your own feelings to it. I got into this YouTube rabbit hole this week, and I encourage anyone to do this. Go and watch old uh, reviews from Siskel and Ebert, because it's oh. really fun to watch them talk about films and stuff like that and be like, oh, you called that one 100%. So I'm like, oh, I don't know if you have the, <laughs> I don't know if that still holds up that opinion. What I got into specifically which is kind of election adjacent, is that there was this special episode where Roger Ebert invited on uh, Martin Scorsese to talk about the best films of the 90s. Okay. Um, when so when was this? This, uh, is... this? was probably like late 1999 oh, okay. or early 2000, probably okay. is when it's they did the episode. Recent. Okay. Well, fairly recent, 20 years ago. Is well, when for happened, this, we're, we're in yeah. a time capsule. Oh, I got you. I Not see. really, actually, um, but yeah. They were talking about their favorite films and... Martin Scorsese was uh, they're actually talking about the movie Fargo kind of a similar thing it's like small town uh, someone thinks they have more power than they really do and it's like that plucky little police officer who figures it out and, and saves the day right and it, that was on both of their lists how much they loved it and they were talking about how it's like uh, you probably couldn't make this this movie uh, because there's almost this like ironic subversion that the Coen brothers are doing in that and Scorsese agrees, like, you're right, I can't do this type of movie. Uh, I love this movie, but I could not do this because what I'm much more interested in is the actual, like, the human being level. Like, yeah. I want to know the human beings, whether they're awful or great or right. in between. I want to focus on just the person, which I think is why Scorsese doesn't really care about plot a lot of times in his movies. Like, I wouldn't say his movies are very plot heavy. They're character driven, the entire thing. It's like, I'm watching a character do stuff. And he stays uh, in a specific world that he understands. Mm -hmm. Right. Like all his movies are in this bubble. Of, That's right. They're amazing. Um, but, and I find that, that this movie is like a smaller scale version of that. Almost an amalgamation of both of those. This is absolutely a, a satire. It's, it's having larger than life characters a little bit like they're playing it up a little bit. But it is looking at these characters who are like valuable, who are like shades of gray, where you see this guy tumble from being like super respected teacher and like losing his job. You see the underpinning of this girl who's like yeah this like teacher's pet is like having an affair with a teacher gets him fired and is very calculated and conniving really underneath it all so you're seeing kind of like the the masks people put on but also the reality of them behind the scenes yeah i i think that's the part and maybe i tend to fall more on the scorsese philosophy which is when i watch a movie at least historically, I mean, we won't really talk about the Irishman too much, but, you know, that Scorsese approach where I also want to watch a movie of this nature, even in satire or comedy, and feel, unless it's like, I love lowball shit, you know, like where I don't have to, like, I can just lie and, and, and like, lie down and laugh. Yeah, you're hot rod, right? Hot rod? Well, no, hot rod's deep. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot, there are a lot of layers there. Cool when he beans, said cool beans, cool beans, I was like, yeah. yeah. It's meta, dude. You know, this one... I think it's, maybe it's a 90s thing. I, I don't know. We, we'll learn, I suppose, particularly after this year, but if we ever have to delve into another 90s era, um, but there's punch pulling, right? I mean, they mm. bring up a nefarious affair, this uh, teacher who is clearly portrayed as having direct intent of taking advantage of this girl, at least in the uh, recounting of the tale. I, and again, one of the dimensions of this is, you know, there are perspectives because we're getting uh, stories from specific people that, are, yeah, he loses his wife. He's he's disavowed in the Mission Impossible terms. Uh, he's got a great cry face. So there's a great scene in the principal's office. And I, I you know, I, I was like, great. And then just disappears. I know the, 
the impact in some sense drives like the conniving nature of her and uh, eventually spoiler alert the Achilles heel or the penis of uh, Matthew Broderick mm-hmm. his character but that is not something even in 99 that a teacher just get to move away from <laughs> Right, no, true. Uh, that's prison, and the impact would go far beyond him le- leaving. That girl would not be able to return to high school and still run for school president. I mean, it's it's a bit of a skipping. Yeah, well, I think the idea here, I, I agree with that point. It's like, if that came to light, like there's no way that guy leaves that town. No. Like he is being arrested, he's going to jail, hundred percent. Girl's reputation would be ruined. But I think the subtext was is that that didn't ever come out. She got her mother to like either pay people off or keep it hush hush because it's only Matthew Broderick who actually knows about that. And the so he principal. tries to blackmail and the principal. So it's Matthew Broderick who's trying to blackmail her at that one point and she kind of like pushes back a little bit. Yeah. Those are like little things for me that, and maybe again, I'm certainly biased in everything that I do. I'm biased against all humans. As those small plot points started to unfold, you know, like throwing the little sister's introduction as a, as this awkward lesbian coming out moment with this teen drama thing. When it's introduced, it's, it's a little jarring because you're not expecting it because it's a strange way to kind of just throw a new character at you. Mm-hmm. But then it feels like there's an opportunity for, and, and they try in, in some measure to talk about, you know, sexuality and, uh, and this reflection in that social sphere. But then it just becomes jilted friend, uh, idealistic girl, uh, manipulative, gets what she wants in the end, smoking joint having sex with a girl and living her life. It's its just weird. It's like, it felt soft to me. I do like yeah. her rant. You know, and I, I understand how the the pieces were supposed to play together. Now what, I, now what I'm finding with rewatching, or in many cases, watching for the first time these movies from 1999, is that there was actually a lot more gay content in movies than oh, yeah. I, I knew that there was. <laughs> yeah, it's surprising. I bet if we could actually time travel, uh, I mean, you would have been younger, but if we could time travel as people our age now back to 99, I bet it wasn't even that understated. I think just the context of how we talk about it now has become too sensitive. I mean, I use the word too, so that might upset people, but um, we're looking to be offended now. But I, the 90s were a pretty liberal time. I mean, the rave culture blur got big, uh, 94, mm-hmm. 92, uh, you know, because the UK uh, rave scene was blurring lines already. And so, you know, girls and boys are boys and girls. I mean, the that song's old as fuck, man. Like, it's these are not groundbreaking things. I think it's just American cinema and American culture has a problem. I think that's that a poster. Most of it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's been in almost every movie we've watched. <laughs> I know. That's what I mean. It's like, boy, there's a lot more gay content yeah. than I thought there was in late 90s but movies. Maybe it's not impactful because they're pulling punches. I mean, it's a passing, you know, they're all passing context and we now are like oh there's an opportunity here to like develop that into something that could have followed the same narrative but you know in the scorsese description like you know how do we get closer finding out she's adopted i mean what a, that that's a huge bomb mm-hmm. again like, i know and this is dropped right and then you're like oh you know i was like that could you have know, been I such an important piece of the thing, something that was in the back of my mind too is that if this was a book that they were adapting today like let's say election the movie had never happened and they wanted to adapt it today this would be that netflix like limited series or they try to make stretch five it seasons out. out of this and yeah, stretch yeah. it out a little bit just to delve into all these little side things that only get like very passing mentions throughout the the narrative like have you have you like you like this movie have you looked at the book no 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 i've okay. not looked at the book at all um so i don't know how well regarded the book it actually, yeah. actually even is i mean adaptations in general have to cut especially for some things yeah, yeah. yeah that's right 
And there's another aspect to this, and this is going to get you so mad. I know this is going to get you so mad because uh, oftentimes I feel I bring this stuff up and uh, uh, the response is that it's like, you know, movies are a vacuum. You can't bring in these outside uh, perspectives. But I feel that there is this really fascinating meta narrative that's going on in this movie at the same time. And I actually looked it up and I'm not the only person who thought there was like critics even at the time who actually mentioned this. So like, I'm not, <laughs> this is not an original defensive, opinion. defensive. Okay. Yeah. Throw it. Uh, Matthew Broderick's most famous film is Ferris Bueller's day off where he pay, plays this like kid who like skips school, doesn't care about anything. It's flipping yeah. his off. Yeah. And this is flipped on its head where he's like now the person that he was trying to go against in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I feel like there's this interesting push and pull that they're actually even playing with in this movie because there's even a scene straight out of it where he runs, 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 and then stops right at the door and then walks in, right? Like I think they're intentionally bringing that idea of like, hey, remember how he was back in Ferris Bueller? This is what he's like now. Uh, and kind of the subtext of being like, this is how these characters are in high school, but they're probably going to be very different when they advance like 15 years in the future. So I think there's a little bit of play going on here at the same time that people are more complicated than what their younger selves seem to be. I can see why people would say that. I think it's bullshit only <laughs> because, you know, I don't remember what city, but Ferris Bueller is what, Chicago. I mean, the, the, I think it's Chicago. Yeah, the yeah. context of the character is totally different. I think what might drive that is this thing I was feeling while I was watching is I don't know if Matthew Broderick actually has that much depth of an actor as people want mm. to give him credit for. And I feel like whenever I see him now in the different stages of his career, he is kind of the same character in all I of his movies. That. I also feel like uh, there might be just not a direct line with the Ferris as a child or you know, child and then sort of the doldrums of being a middle-class uh, middle class American adult. But that might just be a reflection in general of the cultural diaspora, like just the writer. I don't know how old he would have been, 61. Yes, he's in his like late 30s or something. He might just be coming there too, where, I mean, mm -hmm. if you're a Hollywood writer, I'm pretty sure unless you're at the top, top, you know, 1% game, you're grinding, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's going to be this feeling like, it's particularly in art forms and creative forms where I know I struggle with this, the... For me, being uh, not business-minded and not sort of a sane individual, the thought of doing a rote, stru structured commercial work is like emotionally difficult for me, uh, which is why I'll never succeed at in that level. And I think for even creative people that live and love the commercial world, that's a, that's a bitter pill, right? Like mm. to paint a picture and then have someone tell you how to paint it, those are two fundamentally different things. So becoming a teacher... And, you know, he starts off, he's like, I just want to raise the generation next and bring the future leaders. And then he's kind of like doing the exact same fucking speech every, every day. year. And they show the, the thing at the blackboard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. those are like little elements that I actually really liked. And I'm like, yeah, this is uh, a great place to start a character to break. So uh, the, this is my minor criticism of the movie is that whereas I think everything for me works when it's. Uh, revolving around him and Tracy and the school and the whole the actual election of the movie election what doesn't necessarily work for me on the same level at least is his affair that he starts right with his like the friend who is cheating on Tracy I mean I know that in the back of his mind he's kind of blaming her for getting his best friend fired I don't understand the jump from him going to 
like have an affair with that man's wife or ex-wife i guess in this case and i know that sometimes affairs are not necessarily like super planned out they're a matter of like they just kind of happen but i didn't feel like there was enough given to me to understand like so why because it seems like he likes his wife (laughs) i know that there's a little bit of distance going on there even he's not like sharing a lot of stuff or not talking but like what what forces him to go down the affair route and i don't know if i ever really got a great answer for it i agree with you that yeah it's awkward they don't work on it enough. I, I disagree only that I think it's intentionally depicted, whether correctly or not, that him and his wife actually don't have a good relationship. I mean, they mm-hmm. they do their best to show her exceptionally plain, downtrodden, you know, unbeautified in the Hollywood sense. And she's, I can't remember who she is, but, she, you know, she's a, a film actress. She's not like a, yeah. a B-roll lady they just brought in as a filler. She's actually been in a few movies. She's she can beauty up. And I think it's intentional for her to look, you know, small towny with the frazzled hair. Whether it's enough, like you said, I don't think so. And it and it gets, you know, though all those points, like the sudden acceleration into the affair with the teacher and Reese Witherspoon, the sudden, you know, the pornographic basement dwelling thing. Like there's so many awkward moments that are couched in reality and pe- real people's experiences, but yeah, are not played out strongly in the movie where i i'm like yeah like this is of course this would happen you know i can't i can't wait or like what's going to happen next he's really going to go off the end now it's more like oh shit like that's like come on man and then the next thing happens oh like really you're gonna like you know and there's just a lot of questioning in my mind about i guess that's one of those things too it seems like we've been saying this a lot here recently on some of the movies we've been watching which is I don't really think that anyone comes off particularly good looking in this film, meaning like their their actions, their their morality. And perhaps maybe that is a 2020 Kyle saying that. I don't know if I would have necessarily felt the same way in 1999. Maybe I would have been like, Matthew Broderick was totally justified doing what he was doing. Maybe I would have felt that. I don't know if I would, but... But I think that there is these shades. I think we're seeing <laughs> to bring in sociopolitical things again. I think we're seeing like this, like crumbling of like the quote unquote, like the exceptionalism of America, right? Where it's like white picket fences, you know, you make your living, everything's cool. America's great. And this is showing like, actually there's all this stuff that's happening here that people are really struggling with, which is like doing the same thing day in and day out, not feeling like they matter, affairs, backstabbing, political machinations, all this stuff is actually happening. And this whole idea of what America is, is not what we've been sold here for the last like 70 years. This is the other thing about pulling punches. I feel like I agree with you. <clears throat> I don't I think it's intentional that none of the main characters are meant to be uh, heroes, but they throw in the rube. I think it's a desperate sort of lifesaver in this Christian morality sense. I mean, I agree mm. on a spiritual like with all of my spiritual sort of uh, new learnings that you know, particularly in the part where they're all praying I, like I thought that was a, a great moment that was misplayed because it, it's you know, I just wasn't invested in the drama at that point. But you have everybody praying for themselves except for the the fool, and he's not right. projected as you know like like a varsity blues jock, right? He's not yeah. this guy who's taking advantage of women, or whatever. He's like literally this, right? Almost like this Jesus-like character. He's just passing through. He loves everyone. He's humble, you know, like he's a little stupid and then that's it. And then he gets it and then he doesn't get it. You know, it's weird. And I think that if they had gotten rid of that, 
and they had added a little grit to him, then you'd get mm. this political commentary about small town living, for example, or America as a culture. But throwing that in there made it very cheap because uh, I don't know. I just I, I didn't understand uh, why. Yeah, I can I can agree. I, this before it passes too far by. I just wanted to make a very small point. That was actually one of my favorite like filmic tricks of them like panning up out of their bedrooms <laughs> each three of them doing their praying i thought that was a really great shot i think you're right though because i think the problem with chris klein's character yes i'm gonna agree with you he's not the best actor in the world never has been i think the biggest thing is like you can see the two big polar opposites of the two women who are running right so you have uh, the Reese Witherspoon character who is like very politically motivated, knows exactly what she's doing, is trying to play uh, the crowd as much as possible and trying to do like all the right things. And then you have Jessica Campbell, right. who is like, you know, hellfire, brimstone. I'm going to speak the truth to the man, you know, that type of thing. And then you have Chris Klein, who like, I don't even know what type of thing he's trying to portray because a dummy doesn't necessarily... <laughs> I don't think actually really excels in politics. They either have to be like super great at speaking. They have to be able to draw a crowd. You have to convince people to vote for you. I don't think he actually does anything to have people vote for him. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading way too much into that, but it's like, as far as like the political classes, I didn't feel like he actually fit into anyone that made sense. I mean, it's a comedic moment when he, uh, when he reads his pre-written speech, I'm, I felt Mm -hmm. it was implied that the, that Matthew Broderick read, uh, wrote it for him. And so or his, he, like, the, uh, girlfriend the girlfriend character, yeah. And so when he reads it and he, he doesn't realize the punctuation, and you know, so there, it's intentionally, mm-hmm. I think, supposed to show that he has no qualifications whatsoever except for his popularity. And, and no philosophy, right? He's not right. actually, right. <laughs> there's nothing that's actually driving him to run. And if we want to read too much into this, you know, you could make perhaps uh, a discussion around whether Tracy and uh, Trixie, you know, what was the, what are the two, anyways, uh, Reese Witherspoon and the, and the sister, um, yep. that they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin. They're both lying to get what they want, ultimately. Just one wants the power of uh, public acknowledgement, and one wants the power to control her life to go where she wants to go, which is into, you know, presume a, ca- a repressed Catholic school lesbian mm-hmm. fantasy, like male-written lesbian fantasy bullshit. Sure. <laughs> um, and so, I don't know, it's... Uh, again, th- these are all things that I think there are... I can understand why some people would like it and i do respect parts of it that were made (laughs) but the overall experience for me felt so outdated antiquated Mm. and and like half fulfilled so i guess it answers the next question about how you don't think there's much cultural there's not much cultural relevance of this movie anymore i mean maybe contextually if small town living can still reflect on like and we talked about this in varsity blues and you know like the idea of the you know the one truck town like if you've got five thousand people or less and there's two high schools or you know i don't know i can't contextualize what living like that is now but even the idea of high school politics i think must have evolved so much politics itself is such a fucking nightmare over the last 20 years has become this cesspool of nothing i mean it has no real value anymore i my a presumption is like in the 21 Jump Street comedy or 22 where they've destroyed these uh, high school norms of, you mm-hmm. know, categories. I have a suspicion that politics and things of that nature, the experience of a teenager has gone that way. It's become too ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And I, I think these tropes don't play at all. That's my feeling uh, as a 
wise, nearly 42-year-old uh, seeker of knowledge, Kyle, as I right. traverse the world and pull in so much information and wisdom. I think I'm going to vomit in my non-existent mouth. All right. Well, the uh, machine here has said that they're about to throw up, so we have to wrap it up here. Um, <laughs> let's do, move on. I do saw something burning, but yeah, keep going. All right. Let's move on into some trivia. Uh, so I'm going to push my button here. Print this out. So some this is this is me being like Debbie Downer here, but I do want to make the the point. This movie came out the exact same week that Columbine happened. So there, that was kind of what was going on in the world at this point. So maybe people, as far as like it's bad take at the box office, I actually have a feeling it just had bad marketing, but there might be something to be said. Like, I don't really want to go and see a movie set in a high school right now. I want to go and do anything else but that. I think it didn't do well because it's a small town political satire. It's probably poorly marketed because this thing, I mean, I, I was surprised actually by the budget. I would have assumed it was a lot less than what uh, mm. the machine said it was. And then, you know, it's 1999. Does Ferris still have a pull? You know, Reese is not Reese Witherspoon of, uh, I mean, I don't know if she's still got pull in general. She did, she had her, you know, a great yeah. uh, era after this. And then there's nobody else in this movie from a star power marketing perspective that's right. going to make you think that this is going to be a hit. Well, yeah, but this is, yeah, very early in her career. And I think it's much past like Matthew Broderick being a box office poll. So That's yeah, I think you're probably right. And she's great in it. Like not to hate on, on dubs on our dubs. Uh, like I loved, I love that she's in it. I, I love the, like I said, the, the fact that, I mean, whether she had choice or this is part of her making the game, but yeah, ugly face freeze frames. And, uh, she plays that sadist, uh, reasonably well. And with the buildup, like again, the, mm -hmm. the, the acting was never a problem for me. I just, I just don't, care about this movie yeah uh well let me tell you about this thing apples apples are featured prominently in this movie usually before trouble arrives for a character they are used as an analogy to entice paul metzler to enter the election an apple tree is shown before mr McAllister is stung by a bee apples hang above the doorway to mr McAllister's living room right before he discovers his wife knows he cheated on her and Mr. McAllister wins the Apple Teacher of the Year Award at the beginning of the movie. So it's basically oranges in the Godfather, Dave. Awful. No, well, I, all I can think about is corny, biblical. Again, and, and this yeah. is the thing about uh, the position of the writing of this thing and, and you know, my, my bias on the puritanical roots of uh, morality in America. I mean, uh, app, like really, you know, original sin, the movie's about like having sex too much and, uh, and the corruption of, you know, egos. It's like, I don't know. It, it's just... It's cheap, Kyle. Right. It's cheap. I, know. I don't know about that, but <laughs> since the movie was shot in a real high school, adjacent classrooms had real class going on while some scenes for the movie were being done. So in the soundtrack, some background noises come from real teachers and students. And director Alexander Payne decided to leave that in as to give the movie a more realistic sound. Um, I think you have a couple of trivia items. It's just printing up some more here. And wow, <laughs> I'm saving so much ink here, Kyle. I wonder right. if Epson will... <clears throat> Send us some money for that great product yes. plug. The great, great Epson printer. Uh, <laughs> it says here that each of the three candidates have a fake Tiffany lamp on their bedside tables. I don't even know what a Tiffany lamp would look like. But yeah, who gives a shit? Is it really? That's a piece of trivia, eh? That's a piece of trivia. Thank you, robot. Uh, President Barack Obama has said that this is his favorite political movie. No, I refuse to believe that. Yeah. 
That's hey, that's Trump. The, the, that's Trump's uh, sub, subversion of history. No, yeah, there's the, no the history. machine printed it out. How could it be wrong? How could it be wrong? If you want, we can do an episode about machines and morality. But I, I, <laughs> I can't fathom how that sentence could have been structured. Obama <laughs> seems to me like an intelligent person. Well, <laughs> I guess I guess you're gonna go fisticuffs with him here uh, at any time. Kick my ass. Okay, so I guess it's time now to rate this movie here, Dave. Of mm -hmm. course, anyone can go and take a list at our entire ratings at Letterboxd, uh, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM, which just so happens is also what our handle is on both Instagram and Twitter, KDVSTM, Kyle Dave versus The Machine. I think, um, just quickly, Kyle, I think you said yeah. anyone can take a list at our letterbox. Anyone can take a look at our Letterboxd. There, I can, I can edit that into post. <laughs> okay, Dave, I'm very curious. What would you rate this film? Yeah, that's a good question. You know me and these numbers. It's hard. It's, I know. It's out of five, of course. Yeah, out of five. Yeah. I think I'm, I think I'm going to put a two on it. Mm. Yeah, two. I'm going to be vindictive. I'm going to give it a two. I guess, I guess you are. <laughs> so, election is now absolutely the most divisive movie that you and i have ever done because i am giving it a 4.5 jesus i liked it that much i really really like this movie but i can't fight with math unfortunately it's the one thing i haven't been able to defeat so with our average that goes to 3.25 which actually we will be rounding down so that's going to be actually a three that we're going to be giving it which gives it uh, currently into our eighth position on our list, but that'll just be probably pushed down here as we go along. As a final poke, Kyle, yeah. I think for a movie you're rating 4.5, you should have done a better job defending it. <laughs> Whoa, throw down the <laughs> gauntlet over here. I think for a movie that's two, you shouldn't have said anything nice about it, so there we go. Well, that's true. I could have gone to a zero, but uh, <laughs> no, I, yeah. Half a star, half a star. <laughs> <laughs> we have watched okay. worse movies so yeah uh, that's right yeah uh, okay well let's see what we are going to be reviewing next week oh boy well Dave I think we're probably going to be back to being aligned next week just my gut feeling uh, next week we get to talk about Idle Hands oh god the is Devin Sawa starring vehicle it, Idle Hands is that is that honestly is that the movie where a hand is is there is there like a cousin it or like what do you call it? Uh, is there I mean, a dismembered I, I, hand? I obviously have not seen this film yet, uh, but um, yes, oh God, yes, it is. <laughs> and Kyle, I know the robot will be viewing this for us, but am I going to have to pay for this movie? There might be a way that I can possibly help you out with that, but oh God, uh, Devin, so I don't know. There's a reason. Yeah, idle hands, man. Well, let, let's let's raise our hands. Who who wants to watch Idle Hands <laughs> next week? <laughs> Excuse me. If this is if this is for the fate of the world, I'm willing to lose my eyesight for it. So let's right. get this done. 